again, thanks to Crime Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and I was about to say, just like ever, or as ever, I'll, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague and regular co-conspirator Pete Mitchum, but Pete's not with me today. Listeners from last week will realise that Pete's holidaying on the beautiful Sunshine Coast, and we managed to catch up and have a few beers uh, last week and uh, record a podcast. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to organise anything this week, so I'm flying solo, but we've got three great guests. Uh, so I don't have Pete to uh, to cover my inadequacies, I might just uh, go straight on to them. Um, now, the, the, the very first uh, guest is uh, nutritionist Rosie Mansfield. Uh, we're on the cusp of dry July, um, or July, which sees dry July, and Rosie Mansfield is a nutritionist who has, uh, is an ambassador for dry July. Now, it might seem unusual that a beer-focused website might look at dry July, but it's always something that we uh, that is very close to our heart here at Australian Brews News. We do like to uh, sort of make sure that we're balancing our love of beer with uh, ample moderation and uh, you know, remembering that whilst it's got uh, loads and loads of flavour um, and can be very good for you in small doses, there are some small doses, but uh, without getting all preachy about it, I did want to have a bit of a chat to Rosie Mansfield just to find out some of the benefits um, of being involved in Dry July and uh, you know, some of the things you can expect if you do get involved. I know a lot of uh, the Australian brewing industry, as hard as it is, do get involved. So without any further ado, uh, Rosie Mansfield is uh, marketed or her, her, uh, her brand is to be the Gen Y nutritionist. So I asked her, what is a Gen Y nutritionist? Gen Y nutritionist, basically, I've called myself that because um, what I want is I want people to meet me, listen to me, uh, read about me, and realize that um, it's an extremely achievable role model. Um, I love my wine and cheese as much as I love uh, my kale smoothies. So um, what I want people to realize is really, really try and take on that board, that 80-20. And when you do indulge, you know, make that moderate, um, just make up for it the next day. So it's, it's kind of like maths, you know, like just kind of, you know, if you have some empty calories one day, just make sure you, you go a little bit less the next. So I'm realistic. And I think that's achievable in our uh, lifestyle. I, I noticed that you say that you uh, enjoy a bit of uh, wine from time to time. And on, on your uh, celebrity management page, you've got a, a photo of you drinking wine seemingly in Italy or somewhere nearby. So you, you obviously have a tipple. I do have a tipple, yeah. Um, I, we laugh. My friend is actually a wine rep and we call ourselves a retox detox team because um, we, it's a bit strange that we should be best friends. But absolutely, I love wine, and but I love it in moderation, you know. Um, if I have a few too many, I'll go for a run the next day and I'll um, make sure I have my antioxidants. So um, I just make I fit it into my lifestyle, but um, I never go overboard. Is alcohol something you, you, you mentioned that if you sort of have some empty calories one day, you go without the next day? Um, I, I know a lot of people have taken that approach with sleep. You know, I, I didn't get any sleep last night. I only had four hours. If I sleep for twelve hours um, tonight, that mm -hmm. sort of balances up, and I you know, average seven hours. And it doesn't quite work that way. Does it work that way with nutrition? If I you know sort of have six or seven standard drinks tonight, and I have none tomorrow night, I can say that I've only had three and a half standard drinks. No. Uh, no, not not in that way. It's more it's more actually calories ways and, and trying to keep the weight gain off. But um, no, your, your liver is still going to um, feel it if you're having a, a large amount of alcohol in one stint. Um, your liver is going to struggle a little bit. So it's not it doesn't really work the same way as sleep. And I don't actually think that works with sleep either. Um, we really need to get our eight hours of sleep. And we really need to try and stick our drinks to moderation. When we binge, our liver will be affected by that. 
And, and what are the effects of alcohol on the body? Uh, one of the, the headlines in the media release that was sent out um, about Dry July is, you know, they've converted the uh, equivalent of alcohol consumed by Australians into the sort of mandatory Olympic swimming pools and uh, the, the amount of fat that's, uh, you know, sort of created through that alcohol. But, you know, when you're talking about one person drinking, uh, you know, let, let's just say a sort of, a, you know, the, the standard recommended amount of alcohol, what are the effects of it on, on, on the body? Yeah, absolutely. So the standard being um, 10 mils of alcohol. Um, so, uh, sorry, 10 grams of alcohol. So um, it's going to have a different effect to different people. Um, on average, kind of our liver can only kind of um, metabolize a drink an hour. Um, so, of course, that is going to change with ethnicity, uh, gender, all sorts of different things. So, um, yeah, and it's going to have some immediate effects. Like some, some of the most immediate is uh, anxiety. You get some amnesia. Um, some people can be quite depressed. There's obviously nausea. Sleep issue is quite a big one, which will then have an effect over it into the next day. Um, and long term is, you know, weight gain as well. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it does it does quite a lot in a very short amount of time. Of course, that's alcohol. We we sort of uh, generally we we talk about the beer belly, but. Um it's alcohol itself nothing you know no particular products of or properties of beer that cause a weight gain it's the the alcohol that's in wine that, that that's in beer that's true uh, of wine and spirits as well yes true so uh, now, now you did talk about having some antioxidants in the next day. There are a number of um, cures on the market for people who have overindulged that are designed to, uh, you know, sort of counter the effects of alcohol. Um, can you counter the effects of you know I I excess alcohol using a you know magic potion? Look, I think you can absolutely repair some damage. That's mainly to the cells. So when we drink as well, what we're doing is, you know, we are damaging our cells in certain uh, ways as well. And that's where antioxidants come in and um, make those cells complete again. Um, they don't make us feel any better. Um, like I say, the liver will take however long the liver wants to metabolize. There's nothing we can do to speed that up. But yeah, what we can do is try and repair as much as we can by um, consuming antioxidants the next day to just make sure that our cells are nicely, um, all nice and complete. Um, uh, but yeah, there's nothing we can really do to speed on the hangover or anything like that. Obviously, staying hydrated is a massive one. Uh, alcohol is a diuretic. So uh, we want to stay hydrated the whole time. So um, it's pretty much water and antioxidants. There you go. Well, now, uh, Rosie, I'm somebody who uh, I, I, I like to say um, I drink professionally. Um, but in, in saying that, one of the mantras that we really uh, promote on Brews News is drink less, drink better, drink for flavour um, and not for effect. And so we sort of really don't uh, talk up the, you know, some of the, the excessive properties of alcohol. But I, I do it is part of my job that I have to drink. So something like dry July and not drinking beer for a month um, <laughs> would be a little bit like not answering my emails for a month. At the end of it, I would have this huge stock of things I need to try. So um, dry July isn't something that's for me, but I do sort of make sure that I uh, sort of limit my intake during the week and then, you know, have alcohol-free days. Do alcohol-free days benefit Absolutely, of course. Um, I mean, if we can have alcohol-free days, I think what that not only does is um, help our body out a bit, but our mind as well. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot happening with mental health and alcohol as well. So it just uh, allows us to ground ourselves again, you know, improve our self-esteem. So I think, yeah, the alcohol-free days are fantastic. I know 31 days is um is quite a lot and uh, especially for the professional drinkers, uh, it is quite a lot. But um, 31 days out of 365... 
I think if we can't prioritize our health for that, then um, we need to have a few little shifts or a few little conversations with ourselves. That's and on that, what are the uh, some of the, the the benefits that people that go through the thirty one days and and do have a dry July? What will they uh, experience? Yeah, well, I mean, one, you're probably going to have a few more coins in your pocket, which is good, which is what you can um, donate, obviously, to dry July. Um, but I just think in general, it's actually your body will uh, naturally detox very quickly after giving up alcohol. It's then more about your mental health. Um, like I say, your self-esteem will go up, your body image will improve. You'll feel a lot more in touch with your body, which I think is um, one of the uh, the main improvements. Um, a nice clear head so you can make some better decision making. Um, and um, it's obviously having a good effect because I think it's about half of the dry July participants um, say that it did change their drinking habits forever. So um, I think naturally it just has long-term effects having these nice um, pauses from drinking. Even aside from uh, you know, drinking to excess, um, which seems to be where all of the media focus is, um, you know, it's all of the problems, the, the street violence and some of those things, is just even if you drink at uh, you know, some, what, what are regarded um, as safe uh, levels, is that a habit? Is that habit forming? Um, oh, that's a tough question, more probably for a psychologist. But it... oh, so sorry, and, and I, I, I didn't mean habit as in a, a drug habit. But you know, do we do get into routines of just drinking, um, not because we want to or because we need to, but because we uh, are just used to doing that? I am the Gen Y nutritionist. I know that a lot of our culture and our socialization is around alcohol. So um, that that's an absolute given that it's going to happen. Um, yeah, I just think. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think that's it's part of what we do. And, and I guess that's one of the aims of Dry July is breaking that habit and, um, you know, sort of getting you thinking about the time, the occasions that you do drink. Yeah, finding new things to do. You know, it doesn't always have to be in a, in a drinking environment when we do get social. So um, it doesn't allow us to kind of um, change our attitude to it and consider new things. So uh, I think it's a great thing. I think it's great for our personality. See how they go out and sober, out in the big world. So, um yeah, I think it's a very positive thing. And needless to say, you won't be uh, in, in engaging during dry July? Absolutely not, no. Um, I've I had a few things where people have offered me golden tickets to make sure that I can um, get to a few events. But no, I will be going absolutely dry for 31 days. I think it's a absolutely brilliant um, concept. If listeners did want to um, sign up for Dry July, did you have any tips to make it a little bit easier for them or just uh, strategies around how to, uh, to to stay clear of uh, of, of the drink? 100%. Um, absolutely. Go, go on, sign up, and then join a team. So whether that be a team that's already um, been created or get your own team, we're obviously stronger all together. Uh, another thing as well is you can get a Band, a wristband um i always think that's quite good just being mindful whenever you get that urge you know you get a little bit of peer pressure there's going to be a wristband on you constantly reminding you not to do which you can buy from their shop i think that that is uh, i'm going to buy them all for my friends to make sure that they stay strong um but yeah just just being mindful this is a great cause and it's just 31 days and um yeah just go for it Wonderful. Now, one last question. It wouldn't be a, a beer podcast or a beer website if we didn't ask you, you. We know that you drink wine. Are you a beer drinker as well? I am a beer drinker, yes. Uh, what sort of, uh, what, what's your taste of uh, beer extend to? Uh, I'm afraid I'm on the Barbie beer. I'm, I'm a low-carb I'm a low carb girl. I'm a hand super dry. 
Okay, no worries. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's what brings you pleasure. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry to the craft beer people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we don't need to ask whether you've got a beard or not. No. <laughs> Clean shape. <laughs> Rosie Mansfield, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, where can we find out a little bit, anyone that's uh, interested in following you and uh, finding out a little bit more about Rosie Mansfield besides Dry July? Um, I'll, I'll put links to Dry July, obviously, but where can we find out a little bit more about Absolutely, Rosie Mansfield? Absolutely, yes. If you would like to go hop on a nutrition adventure with me, you can go to mynutritionadventure.com. Wonderful. Rosie Mansfield, thank you for joining us on Radio Brews News. Pleasure. <laughs> And that was Rosie Mansfield. If you're interested in more information about Dry July, we've got a little bit of information linked to the uh, media release. It is fairly scary to uh, think about the number of calories uh, in, in beer that the media release says, and it's all designed to uh, grab attention and uh, get some coverage. But hopefully, uh, you will sort of uh, it will at least make you think about uh, the consumption um, and how much you're drinking. Now, my next guest. Uh, is James Hurd, not the footballer James Hurd, not that James Hurd. But earlier in the week, Australian Brews News editor uh, James Atkinson ran a story uh, talking about James Hurd, who is the Good Food Guide Sommelier of the Year and uh, has the Twitter handle Reshes. And uh, James has run a story recently about um, Reshes and its sort of underground resurgence and how it's become a little bit of a, 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 a cult beer. And it was interesting, he thought it was quite interesting that a very highly regarded and award-winning sommelier uh, was, was such a fan of uh, a, a mainstream beer. He posted the story, and there was quite a bit of a spirited discussion, you know, questioning why a wine sommelier would be, uh, you know, what a wine sommelier would know about beer, um, suggesting that he was essentially uh, recommending the yellow tail of of beers, um, yellow tail being that sort of very cheap uh, two buck chuck style wine that's very popular as an export to the states. And uh, that a sommelier should be leading by example. So I thought, rather than just leave it at that, I might put some of those questions to James and uh, find out what the role of a sommelier is in choosing not just wine but beer. And I started my discussion with James by pointing out that he had stirred up a hornet's nest uh, in his discussion about enjoying rushes. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because I mean, with with beer and, and wine, people tend to you know have very extreme, passionate opinions about what they drink. And for me, the Richard is, is, is sort of a, a small beacon of hope. We, um, you know, the big brewing industry in Australia, I guess, is, is you know has a, a relatively boring, flat history. But I guess there's a few brands and a few styles. I think perhaps craft brewing and small brewers should start to look towards, which is drinkability, and that's something that that for for me, uh, Richard has in spades. Um, you know. It's, I, I, you know, my job is is working with you know, matching wine to food and and thinking about how how people, what drinks do to people with whether it's you know with the acidity, whether it's the sugars, whether it's you know the flavour profile. So with beer, I sort of think along those lines. And obviously, I much you know I prefer you know the idea of craft beer is someone making something small, fresh, and unique, which you know obviously appeals to me greatly. But I also think that most people are drinking. Wine bought from Dan Murphy's and beers bought from Dan Murphy's that are pretty simple, and so therefore, you know, brands that that sort of offer the right direction, that's something that that probably needs some support. Okay, so well, we might take a step back and talk a little bit about uh, who James Hurd is. You're the uh, Good Taste um, or Good Food Guide uh, Sommelier of the Year. 
Yep, that's right. So, so congratulations a, on that, firstly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. So, you know, I mean, awards are awards, but it's always nice to get recognised for things you do work-wise. But you know, um, I guess being a sommelier is is uh, you know it's a growth thing, and it's a bit like craft beer in Australia. There's people sort of um, studying and referring away and sort of geeking out more and more. So it's it's, it's a growing cloud of of people, and it's a good thing that I think that's happening to, for restaurants that people start to understand what they're drinking. Okay. Now, as a sommelier, um, should that be prefaced with wine sommelier or, you know, as a sommelier working in? You know, I mean, the true sense of the word is it's basically, you know, you're looking after the drink. So it's cognac, spirits, beers, you know, fortified wines. It embraces the whole thing. I mean, it's not, you know, whilst wine probably is the most specific area of study, it does, I mean, the study does embrace across the range of, 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 of drinks. Okay, so uh, just just maybe list the um, venues that you are the sommelier at and uh, tell us a little bit about their drinks lists, um, in, in, including the, the beers that you have on. Yeah, sure. So I've got a few different places um, that I've been involved with. One's a French restaurant, so it's got a predominantly French beers and, 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 and um, French ciders. Um, smaller, uh, a couple of smaller ones, and obviously a couple of bigger brands. Then I've got a, a wine bar which is called Wine Library, which probably has about six or seven beers and about 300 wines on it. And then we've got another venue called Pinbone, um, which is uh, a smaller list, sort of a more focused on organics and sustainable producers. And the beers probably reflect that a little bit more there as well. Okay, so maybe uh, you know, with the wine library where you've got three hundred wines and six beers. Um, yeah. What beers? What what beers do you have on there? So we rotate the, on tap. We always have one. Um, we tend to have uh, a local, or an Australian beer on tap, just because we like the concept of it. Um, at the moment, we've got Cooper's um, sparkling one. We obviously, with one tap, can't have a lot of flavour, <laughs> a lot of you know, to 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 avant garde because. It's the general beer that people drink. Then we've got we've got Adnams. We normally carry one sort of English, English sort of style um, bitter, I guess, or, or ale. And with the moment we've got the Ghost Ship on there. Then we normally have a couple of um, dark beers, whether it be at Four Pines or you know varies that sort of slot. And then we have a couple of sort of easy drinking styles. And I try again try and support. I really like what Lyme Nathan have done with their taking out preservatives from beer and stripping back and shortening their shelf life of a couple of their beers. So I normally carry one of those one of those lines that they've parred back. And then basically that, that sort of change it but also try and have try and have stuff maybe people haven't tried, but also maybe make them rethink beers that they wouldn't drink in Australia because they're considered, you know, like Rush's is is an example that, you know, a lot of people Maybe you know the, the more craft beer culture persona wouldn't necessarily embrace. Okay, so so you so you're looking at um, getting your guys that are into the craft beer world thinking differently about some of the mainstream beers as much yeah, as exactly. you know, maybe exactly. taking mainstream beer drinkers on a bit of a drive. Yeah, exactly. I think both both. I mean, it's a big thing for me that with with um, the way sort of Australians embraced wine in the eighties, nineties, and sort of two thousands was. You know, it was about expressing how much you knew, and 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 the style of the drink was turned up, so it was high 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 oak, high sugar, big Shiraz. And I think with beer, 
it's the same thing. It sort of exploded. I mean, you know, really, and it's, it's a great thing that craft exploded. But it's a lot of the beers tend to be, you know, have a very low drinkability, and, and in terms of you can get through one or maybe maybe one and a half, and it's over the discussion, which is great. But in terms of longevity of a brand or a beer, it has to be something that people can can drink, because you know, ultimately, people will walk in and buy a six pack of something or a case of something, and they want to be able to drink a lot. And I think that, and, and the nuance and style of, of whether it's cognac or beer or wine, it has to be something that ultimately has a level of drinkability that someone eventually finds one they like and drinks it by the case. And, and, and I think but, but that, is that something that is unique to beer, or does that carry through to wine? Because you know, obviously, no, I, think, I think it's exactly the same thing that's happened. So I think with wine, it sort of took off and it was big, and, and now wine's really tied back. And as as the the, the Australian consumer has, has started to understand wine. They sort of don't need it to be turned up to, to drink it. And you've seen wine oak levels drop right off and sugar levels drop and acid actually go up, which are all things that, in in, um, in essence, make wine more drinkable. And if you look at alcohol volume in wine, you know it's not just a health issue that you know it's dropped off two or three degrees. It, it's actually because the drinkability of those wines is better. And as people have sort of Australians have understood wine. They've sort of gone more to that European concept of maybe 12, 13 is enough, and 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 you know, more in the sort of French, German, Italian spectrum of of um, of drinking, and moving away from the sort of 15, 16, you know, high alcohol, high volume, you know, pretty in your face stuff. And I think with beer, it's the same the same kind of thing's going to happen. Is it's obviously going to be powerful beers and breweries that make you know intense flavored beers, but I think in general craft beer will, I believe, in you know, in, in a 10 or 15 year period, that people will really start to understand those flavours and maybe not need to have them turned up so much to identify them. And then I think the drinkability, I mean, there's already producers doing that. I mean, uh, brewers doing that um, now. But I think that the mass market of craft beer will eventually hit that edge where people are sort of really understanding what they're drinking and whether it's a Fuggles Hop or whatever, they don't need it turned up to you know eleven. They can have it on eight or nine to sort of really see that it's there. It, it, it's interesting. Drink- it, it, it's interesting here you go through that because I fundamentally agree with the premise that it's. Uh, um, I, I wouldn't call it drinkability though. I would call that balance. Um, balance and yeah, yeah, but 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 also this idea. I, I mean, I, I do cavil with the idea that a great beer or a balanced beer or a drinkable beer. Is a beer that you would drink by the six pack. Um, you know, I've, yeah. I, I, I've and sort that's of not necessarily meant in one sitting, though. You know, as well, it's just something you, you want to go back to and back to for for six months. You know, it's not something that you're obsessed with for three weeks. For me, it's something that you know, you you, you fall in love with not for for a fashion. You fall in love with it because it's just a beautiful. That balance is a great word for it, but it's just a drink that that just goes with whether it goes with food or just goes with sitting on the porch on an afternoon. It's something that you. That, that's drink balance balance and drinkability is is, mm. is is where it's at for me with most things. Because I uh, I mean one of the things that I've always tried to do uh, you know I, I've been sort of doing beer and food matching for more than a decade and you know I yep. realised very early on that when you're talking to chefs particularly um, and sommeliers to an extent um, about uh, some of the flavours in beer and some of the food matching you can tell that they're just defaulting to this you know Barry McKenzie. Um, 
era of beer where beer was something that you drink by you know by the bucket load yeah. when you're sitting on the hill at the Gabba or the uh, Sydney Cricket Ground with half a watermelon on your head um, <laughs> and it's about refreshment and it's about mm. you know sort of getting an effect as opposed to drinking flavor mm. but then some of the great beer countries of the world you know such as Belgium and Germany can have mm. you know, very interesting and characterful beers you know and up to 10 11 percent alcohol but they still yeah. Are beers that are you know wonderfully balanced and subtle and nuanced, um, and they, yeah. they stay, they still are very different to a beer um, of the character of Resch's, for example. Sure. Well, look, I, my you know one of my favourite brews is Cantillon. Is you know obviously something that I'm, I, I think is just remarkable. And 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 in terms of food and wine matching, it's unique, and you can put it with this. You know, they put it. It's in a whole different space for me. It was like again that thing where you discover it. And then for six months, you just want to put it with everything on the menu. You know? <laughs> yes. and, uh, those sort of those lambics and goods and sort of sour beers, I think, are a remarkable thing for, with food and wine. Again, you know, they're probably on a flavour profile that's going to shock and and or and maybe they're some people could perceive those as a fashion thing. But for me, it's again going back to drinkability and balance. They're just you know remarkable, and their alcohol, I mean, again, probably not as high as some of those other Belgian beers, but. But it's remarkably balanced acidity and, and, and you know, I think it's saying that that's a style, you know, I'd love for people to be drinking more of and it's, you know, it is getting more traction globally as well. I guess that, that sort of, that lambic sour beer style as well. But in terms of what I'm, I guess, for me with, you know, why I embrace freshers is you've got to look at the whole picture of what people drink in, in, in Australia and it's that, it comes back to that thing for me is that you know, there's obviously people who know a lot about craft beer and there's that movement. There's a lot of people who still drink mainstream beer, and somewhere in the middle, I think, you know, there's going to be where the where the future of I hope where the future of brewing is, which is that balance and drinkability rather than turn, turned up drinking, which is saying that for me, whether it's wine, cognac, or or whiskey or sake or anything, it just that balance is, is the you know is the word you've used for me. It's drinkability, but th- those those drinks that really excite me, I think. As a sommelier, um, you know, and somebody who's charged with the, the, the drinks list, um, what, what's your approach to wine? Obviously, we've talked about drinkability and there is a, um, you know, sort of a, a need to provide um, wines that are great expressions of subtlety and nuance within each category. But yep. when you've got a, a wine list of 300, obviously, uh, there is going to be some challenges put out to the, the, the drinking consumer. There's going to be some education. There's going to be some sort of leading them a little bit by the nose to sort of think a little bit more about the you know expression of the grape and, and those sorts of things that various cool. wines um, express. Do you take the same approach with uh, building your beer list that, you know, th- th- there is an education, there is showing... The, the, the drinker, not just what they've always uh, consumed and what's safe, but then taking them on a little bit of a journey to what is possible with the four ingredients of, of, of beer? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and with wine and beer, I think there's a big, I mean, particularly with wine, there's a big move towards natural wine, which I guess, you know, it's a hard thing to define, but I guess there's, I think there's 72 things you can put into wine in Australia. Um, and most people think it's just fermented grapes with perhaps a little bit of preservative like sulfur in it. But then there's some wines that could have 30 or 40 ingredients. And I think that um, stuff like Lion Nathan could be stripping out preservatives in beers and, and what goes like getting back to those you know, few ingredients, four or five ingredients with beer. Is a, is a great thing that people need to understand, particularly from Australian beer who've had probably pretty sanitised beer drinking culture. So it's kind of nice to give people stuff that's fresh 
you know, whether it's, you know, young some of the young Henry stuff or just stuff that's, that's actually, you know, that concept of the new car to me is that they did it, you know, is such a, is such a nice concept of beer where it's brewed and only sold in the postcode. And, you know, those ideas of those English owls where they were literally, you know, originally within a horse and cart of where it was brewed. I really like that concept of, of local beer and fresh that's actually um, not had stuff added to, to sort of cure it and, you know, protect it. And I really like the idea of, you know, obviously sustainability is a big thing in food and wine and people moving towards stuff that's a little bit more local and a little bit less, um, you know, I think that fresh, the fresh, fresh, local, not preserved concept is a really important one for, for, for food, wine and beer. Um, so that's stuff that I'm sort of we're sort of starting to get people to to talk about a little bit more is how 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 drinks are made. I mean, it's pretty unique. It's pretty unique. You think that in, in wine, there's no ingredients list on the back of the label. With spirits, there's you know there's no ingredients list required. So I mean, you get a bottle of Jim Beam, you've absolutely got no idea what's in it. You know, if you get a bottle of Armagnac from France, you've got no idea apart from the alcohol what's in it. And I think that's saying that that people. Um, need to start to think more about when they're walking in is what, what's actually in this and, and getting online and looking at back, looking at the ingredients. And I think the beers that you end up being drawn towards long-term, the ones, you know, and, and like, you know, those cantons, which are, I guess, you know, uh, ambient ferments, you know, they're, they're really pretty remarkable drinks, that, that the way they're made and the, the level of understanding to be able to brew stuff or ferment stuff that without addition of processing aids and sulfurs and, and you know, it's obviously different for brewing and wine, but the same with sake production, the ones that are that are made by, you know, Koji and, and I mean, Toji that are um, just using Koji and a couple of ingredients and not, again, processed. So I think there's the stuff that we're starting to get people to talk about is what's in your drink. It's interesting that you've uh, highlighted the, the the line uh, one, for example, where they uh, you know they came out almost a decade ago with the natural beer promise, um, but very soon after had to resolve from that and, and sort of move back away from that because their biggest selling beer, which was Forex Gold, um, that, that they were getting complaints that that the beer was going flat because they removed the um, you know the pre-ice yeah, my understanding was that they'd gone, maybe I'm, I'm sure you're more open than I, but I thought with 4X Bitter, it was still made um, without the addition of of uh, preservatives. And that was it. On, so yeah. See, that in itself um, brings up one of the great furfies of beer, the, you know, the modern brewing industry. Um, very few of the major brewers add any form of preservative to beer because... Um, you know, one of the things that the sulfurs remove oxygen um, from beer, you know, they're designed to sort of uh, stop the beers from oxidising. And the modern brewing processes are so good at removing oxygen. The amount of oxygen. oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, so and, and that's yeah. one of the, the, the great furfies about beer is laden with preservatives when, of course, wine yeah. almost can't be made wine, without wine. preservatives. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah it can, but it's, yeah, it is much harder with wine than, than beer for sure. Much, much more volatility. And, and that's obviously something that the craft industry has uh, sort of played upon um, when, yeah. you know. But there's processing aids, I think, used rather than necessarily ingredients as well, isn't there, with beer? As yeah, in, but they're not in, yeah, I yeah. don't think not, they were excluded. They don't necessarily end up in, sorry? Yeah, and, and I don't think they were excluded from the craft beer promise. It was uh, mm. what the ingredients were, and so they didn't add enzymes and they didn't add um, yep. 
you know, isomerized hop extracts, but, you know, yep. because... The, the line uh, are doing that again, are they? They're actually adding that back into all their products. Well, uh, I would need to sort of check it on a beer by beer basis, but I know that they, you know, it was a really wonderful initiative that they brought out. Well, um, they one, brought it out, sure. but then they had to uh, go back to pre-isomerized hop extracts <laughs> for yeah. um, for X Gold was one because uh, the 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 rest of the beer didn't carry the the, the, the foam, and so that the beers weren't were, were looking flat. Um, yeah, again, yeah, yeah, sure. that's all my understanding, but it it just yeah. shows the highlight. Um, but which is one of the reasons why um, people have moved towards craft brewing because of this perception. And it's often a wrong perception, incidentally, that you know, craft brewers are making better beer because they're making it more naturally. But um, just uh, well, it, it brings us on to Resh's. And, uh, you know, Resh's is a very interesting case because you've embraced it. Um, can, can I ask, first of all, now you've taken the Twitter handle at Resh's. Um, you know, how did how did you manage to get that? Uh, I'm I'm surprised that CUB hadn't uh, sort of jumped on that long yeah. time. Yeah, well, it's the same as you know Instagram or anything. You go on there, and it's, it's I think that there's no branding or marketing um, department for Russia's, That's for sure because everything's available. I think it's you know it's that it's just it's sort of on the back burners. You know, it's just been left, and the brand's growing through its own um, volition. You know, it's growing through the beer itself. And I guess all the the old school marketing, you know, the old posters that are around, but it's sort of, it's it's it lives without marketing or advertising the beer, and it it, it is actually growing as far as I understand, um, from talking to a couple of the distributors from CUB, it's actually a growth brand. Mm. No, and and that seems to be the case. Um, now, it, it, was there more than a hint of irony in a wine sommelier, or sorry, a sommelier? Yeah, um, I like it. I mean, I kind of like this. I mean, for me, it's I guess it's coming at it from a different angle, but I think. Wine's an area that has a lot of affect, you know, affectation. There's a lot of people who, I guess, go into the go into the game with a, you know, holier than now. You know, how many times have you been to Burgundy? Which hills have you walked up? You know, which, you know, who do you know? And I kind of like the idea of stripping it back and going, look, you know, it's just about for me. It's about drinking a drink. You know, it's, that's that's the uh, ultimately. It's not about trying to, yeah, force. Course not, you know, you could take, you know, to take the name Burgundy, you know, 007 or something. But for me, I really like the idea of being linked to saying that 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 is a, I mean, not now, but I mean, I guess the brand itself rather than the product is is, is from this area, and it's it's the drink we drink around here is, it's a good concept for uh, for a sommelier, or anyone who drinks really, you know, drinking local and thinking local is a good concept. Sadly, I guess the, you know it's brewed elsewhere now and. But I still like the I like the idea of of a beer that that is only available in a, in an area, and I guess there's not many brands like. I mean, there, I guess there are a few maybe in South Australia and WA that don't make it over. Most of the stuff's in market everywhere on the east coast, so I really like that about Rishes. But it, it's I mean it's fundamentally um, you know I. I, I tried it when I was in uh, Sydney and it was a very nice tasting beer, but fundamentally it's a, you know, a, a struck match between it and, you know, any number of other beers from the CUB uh, portfolio. It's definitely a relatively prosaic beer, you know, it's pretty, um, it's got that sort of, I guess the yeast profile is pretty similar, like the flavour is pretty similar to a lot of CUB beers. I think it's slightly different that it's got, I'm pretty sure it's got lower, lower, lower sugar, lower sugar levels and low, I guess lower calories, low, it's it's a little bit lower. It's got the flavour turned up just a little bit more than the others. But yeah, it is. I mean, it's fundamentally it's a it's a you know a, a, a sort of what would be considered, I guess, a classic Australian tap beer. It's pretty neutral. 
But in, in a level of things you say about brewing local and, and, and those sorts of things, but isn't there something that's a touch ironic about... Um, there is. You know, I, I, I'm not sure where the uh, where, where Reshes is brewed, whether it's Yadala or um, Victoria, but you know, you're talking about something that's only available in a small area and yet is sort of imported to that area. Yeah. Um, and, and doesn't that become a little bit about you know, big brewery marketing um, in, in a way, convincing? It is. I mean, it is, but it's kind of, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of those other beers like KB's been stopped and a lot of those other sort of New South Wales, I guess... Um, historical style brands are gone and and rush is yeah it is i mean you know i can't justify the the love of it on a lot of levels and a lot of people could take the you know take the mickey out of me for it but i guess i like the idea of it and i like the idea of, of, of maybe that the you know those breweries eventually will be forced to come back and look at local brands and look at um maybe restoring i mean i mean they've done a couple of sort of uh, different historical batch brews, and they did the Russian draft a couple of years, a few years ago now in Cannes, and it was five percent. It tasted exactly like every other beer that comes out of out of Victoria, the, the CUB um, in the CUB style. Um, but I, I do think that I, I believe that with uh, with brands like Russia's growing and coming, you know. Taking over a local market, there must be there must be a realization for them, the big breweries that you know maybe in the future people as craft beer develops and gets strength and takes over taps, that that they themselves will have to start doing things a little bit differently in terms of sales marketing and understanding maybe people want local beers and 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 a little bit more consideration of flavour. But doesn't it, that then sort of play into the big breweries' mind where they can make the same beers in the same uh, sort of giant breweries and then send it to a market and people feel good about it because... Yeah, I don't think so because I, I, I think that the great thing that's happening at the moment is, you know, through craft beer is people are, under, again, starting to understand flavours, yeasts, hops and what they do in acidity and all the different characters and sugars in beers. And I think that as people do that, that... Those, you know, unless unless the breweries respond, and maybe it's not necessarily going to be, they're not going to set up a, a brewery in Waverley again or in Broadway again, but they may start consideration of what yeasts, what hops, what flavours are going into each of the different, um, each of the different brands they're making, and I think that and, I mean, and they've certainly that, done that. That, 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 that that ultimately is going to be, you know, and I guess you say, perhaps it, it's happened, but I think ultimately. Um, that's going to be a good thing for, for the, the commercial beer, which will always be um, the style of beer most people drink. It's the same with wine. I mean, the big the big the big brands like Penfold, um, the big brands like um, Penfold still have a big market share despite all the small small um, producers that are popping up all over the place. It's interesting you mentioned that because this week we've seen Lion um, come back with um, the Tui's Darling Pale Ale where it looks like they're trying to revamp and revitalise the Tui's brand. They've brought out a beer that's got craft beer stylings. It's an all-malt beer. It uses three hops uh, used in the kettle as opposed to extract. Um, they use the old Tui's Ale yeast. Have you had a chance to try that one yet? I haven't tried that, no. But, I mean, that's that's got to be a good thing is, is putting some care and flow back into brewing because I think... Australian beer drinking particularly has been whoever's got the the current best advertisement, you know, that that that, uh, that the male you know consumer associates becomes the best beer in the country in terms of whether it's VB or Carlton or whoever. So I kind of think it's a great step forward. They're actually putting like something like Tours, which is 
you know, it's a it was a very strong brand, I guess, in Sydney, but it's just pretty neutral bland. I mean, the fact that they're 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 working on that and 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 thinking about actually putting flavour into it rather than just a slick ad, I think is a good is a, is a really good step forward. Well, look, I, I think ending on a point that we drink both agree very strongly about is a good place to stop. Uh, James Heard, congratulations on being named Sommelier of the Year, um, the Good Food Guide Sommelier of the Year, and thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Good chance. Well, there you go. That was James Heard. Be very interesting, as always, uh, to, to hear your thoughts. Uh, please don't be shy in uh, you know, popping up on the discussion boards, uh, sending us an email, um, you know, any of those uh, mechanisms on Twitter, Facebook, uh, to let us know what you think about it. But I have to say that that's the sort of conversation that I love to have. Um, you know, uh, we, we agreed about a lot. Um, there were some things uh, that I wasn't entirely sure about um, or I would really love to see without making beer uh, in any way pretentious. I'd love to see it being a little bit more aspirational than just drinkability being the, the, the test or sessionability. Um, and, you know, you, you can have a, a beer that you just want to have one of um, in a sitting um, or even there, there are a number that I love having half of in a sitting. But, you know, you still want to have, you know, on, on a fairly regular basis. So it's not just the one. But, you know, these guys are charged with uh, getting a wine list to get people in their restaurants and in their bars. And at the end of the day, that is their job. Um, you may not agree with them, but let us know what you think. Speaking of beers that are approachable and sessionable uh, and very much within the mainstream, my next guest is Mark Toomey, who is the brewery director for the Lion-owned Tui's brand. Uh, you might have seen recently on Australian Brews News that they've released a Tui's Darling Pale Ale. Um, to certain degrees of snorts of derision in, in, in some quarters. Uh, but it's a fascinating, uh, both a brewing study and a marketing study, um, looking at the way that uh, Lion is starting to revamp the Tui's brand, maybe put a bit of a premium spin on it. Um, now, as brewery director, Mark's uh, job is to uh, manage the brewery uh, more so than the marketing, but I will be having a chat to the marketers. But I wanted to have a bit of a chat to... Uh, Mark to find out a little bit about the Tui's brand, the beers that they make, and also the new Tui's Darling Pale Ale. But I started by asking him, what does the brewery director at Tui's do? Well, the brewery director, I'm part responsible for all the um, the operations at the brewery. That includes um, the, uh, I guess, the brewing process as well as packaging and um, and also the warehousing on site. Um, and also liaising with a number of our suppliers in terms of quality and delivery and all that sort of thing. So basically, you know, Tui's is a, is a quite a it's our largest brewery within the line group, and um, we've got about 230 people that work on the site. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been on uh, it's based at Lidcombe, which is pretty much in the geographic centre of Sydney, for the last uh, 50 years or so. And prior to that, it was based in in uh, in the middle of Sydney near Central Station. Terrific. So, so would uh, would your role encompass the position of head brewer for Tui's? Is that part of it as well? Or? Yeah, no, I have the uh, head brewer actually reports to me. Um, uh, Russell, he's uh, he's a master brewer with many, many years' experience uh, with both Heineken and Carlsberg and, and now with Lime. Um, yeah, so Russell's our, our head brewer and he runs the, the brewing department. 
Terrific. What's your path to uh, being the brewery director for Tui's? Uh, are you a career lion uh, employee? No, I've um, I've come from the dairy part of our business. Um, I've been involved in, um, I guess, food manufacturing and beverage manufacturing all my working life. Um, I started, uh, did a degree at uh, what was QIT at the time, um, a Bachelor of Applied Science, and um, moved in various roles across the food industry and then eventually ended up with dairy farmers. And then five years ago, I was very fortunate to be offered the, the role of brewery director at Tui's and I made the transition. And in the last five years, um, I, I think brewing's really become part of my um, yeah, DNA now. I really, uh, really enjoy it. And uh, it's such a great business to be part of and uh, everyone associated with the, with the industry is just uh, awesome. Um, part of the IBD, I've been studying my brewing diploma, which has um, been challenging, uh, but something that I really, um, really enjoy. And uh, we've got a number of people right across our, our, our brewery that are also studying to get a better understanding of what brewing is all about. I guess brewing with a, with a background in applied science, the, the, a lot of the brewing uh, side of things would uh, would be very clear to you and uh, might make the studies a little bit easier than somebody that's coming to it new. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think um, you know, brewing is just one of the. It's just a fantastic um, industry. You've got the agricultural component of it, in that you're dealing with natural materials. Uh, there's the materials handling side of it. Um, there's, um, I guess, the, the, the process, the microbiology in, in terms of managing yeast and the hygiene side of things. And then there's also, you know, the sort of chemical engineering aspect of, you know, understanding temperatures and heat exchange and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then there's a great amount of um, material science in, in packaging, uh, which, is, um, which is awesome, bringing together, you know, the beautiful uh, liquid that we create and uh, putting it in a, in a package that uh, consumers can uh, you know, you know, partake in. One of your recent responsibilities has been uh, overseeing the brewing of the new uh, beer from Tui's. Yes, yeah, it's um, been an absolutely um, awesome opportunity to be involved with um, the development of Darling Pale Ale and uh, and the creation of that product with our team. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about the beer. We've obviously got a media release um, that you know going to a, a fairly broad market, um, fairly broad media sort of describes the beer a little bit, talks a little bit about the history. But maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into the beer. Um, it, 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 it's an ale. We, we might start there. Yeah, yeah, it's an ale. It's um, it's made with uh, the original Tui's ale yeast, uh, which. Um, originated from 1869. We've kept that original yeast um, going uh, since uh, the Tui's brothers brought it together, you know, used it in their original dark old ale, as we know, which is Tui's old. And um, it's got a combination of uh, Australian and American hops, um, as well as, um, yeah, quite a complex, um, you know, malt field where we've got a range of roast malt, pale malt, Munich malt, and also malted wheat. And um, that all com combines together to give a, a really um, well-balanced, um, what we'd like to think is a well-balanced pale ale that's, um, that's actually quite easy drinking, but still has a level of complexity in terms of its aroma and flavour. Unlike many of the beers in the, the, the Tui's range, this is an all-malt beer, is that correct? 
Yeah, it is. Um, it's um, yeah, it's it's we've got um, yeah the ability to to make I guess a, a brew that yeah is um, yeah made from I guess natural materials that we bring together uh, to 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 form a um, a really you know well rounded um, beer. It's, and, and that's a little bit, uh, you know, of a departure from Tui's because, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, Tui's, I, I think it fits in with what's called the traditional, um, you know, beer category, um, tended to be the classic Australian lager, uh, which has, you know, a, a fairly large um, adjunct sugar um, base to, to really lighten the body out, um, you know, have a crisp, dry finish um, and one of the things that I've always been had explained to me by you know brewers from uh, many of the big breweries is you know all malt beers tend to be a slightly heavier bodied beer um, that for some beer drinkers you know it, it's not what, they, what they're after particularly on a hot day it must have been a big decision to um, you know put a, a beer with all malt into the the, the, the Tui's range yeah it's um I mean, we're obviously, um, you know, fermenting it right down to, you know, to quite a low um, extract level. And um, and at the same time, it's something that, um, you know, we're recognising that, um, that to be true to the pale ale sort of genre, we need to ensure that, you know, we, we, we meet that sort of requirement. And did uh, you know? Was there much talk amongst the brewing team about whether um, you know that body might sort of be you know more challenging than the you know the, the, the two is new, the classic two is new? Your lab team was um, we were given a brief, and we basically got our whole brewing the selection of individuals across all our brewing teams, and they came together and did like three brew creation sessions. Where they 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 then shared um, their initial you know emulations of this beer with each of the rest of the team and got feedback and um, and they fine tuned it fine tuned the brew over about um, three um, three iterations if you like of, of the creative sessions and then getting feedback and then moving again. How how in a brewery the I mean Lidcombe's not a, a small brewery you obviously don't commandeer the uh, sort of the, the main kettles uh, to do a pilot uh, brew what, what, what's the, the the process just for someone sitting at home you know sort of uh, imagining the uh, brewers sitting around de- developing a beer like this what sort of system you know and what volumes do you uh, produce it on Yeah so we've got we've actually got a small pilot brewery um, that we actually yeah can work to create various um, brews and it produces about 70 litres or so and from there we sort of you know fine tune it and then we're um, then we're able to sort of um, because of the volumes that we do do when we do a first trial emulation and we will actually make a full brew which is about 87,000 litres believe it or not mate and um, and 870 hectolitres and we will actually then blend that off into some of our other beers as we um, yeah, if if it if it if it doesn't sort of reach the original specification. Okay, so uh, I'm sort of intrigued. Does anybody ever commandeer the 70 litre unit just to sort of you know having a barbecue in a couple of weeks' time? I might knock something up. Well, actually, it's funny you say that. As part of our sort of drive to sort of create a bit of vibrancy into um, yeah, beer and all the rest of it, we're actually we've recently purchased a little brew kit. They're actually offering all our teams, and a number of our teams in the brewery, we actually already use our pilot plant. We're actually getting another 
um, a small kit to um, to play around with and give people the opportunity to create their own you know recipes and and play around with just as um, sort of team events and things like that. And the likelihood is we'll probably start inviting some of our customers and and other people within the community to have a bit of a play around as well. Terrific. Now, just before I move on, I'm fascinated about the history of Two Years Old. Um, has the recipe for Two Years Old changed much over the years? I know that we're that you're still using the same yeast, and uh, you know there are samples stored in a, a couple of yeast banks around the world just to make sure that the the, the yeast survives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the yeast is absolutely critical to um, ensuring that we deliver the sort of the high esters and that sort of flavour that's pretty unique for two years old. I, I mean, I probably, you know, I can't imagine over the last 145 years, 150 years, I'm sure that the recipe is probably being tweaked at different times. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the roasted malt, um, pale malt combination together with the, the yeast, and the sort of, I guess, the, the lower, relatively lower level alcohol content um, is, is pretty much been you know, traditionally uh, yeah, as it is. But I guess over years it's probably changed slightly, I'd imagine. I don't know the full history of the recipe, but um, I can't imagine that it would be exactly the same as it was back in 1869, but I believe it's <laughs> pretty close to... Yeah, and it, it, it's, it, so it's still brewed with the ale yeast. It's uh, you know, fermented as an ale. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things I think a lot of uh, you know, beer drinkers um, forget about is that Australian beers have traditionally been brewed with a fairly high uh, you know, sugar load um, because of yep. that's the, the, just a traditional thing. That there, there seems to be some idea that uh, you know, using cane sugar is, is just a new invention for brewers, but it's a, a very traditional, you know, inverted commas, craft way of doing things. Yeah, look, I think um, one of the things with, with sugar is it, it does it does help with you know the, the viability and the vitality of the yeast um, in the early stages of fermentation, and it's um, you know it, it's one of those it's, it's partly used for that, but often you know you, depending on how the yeast is stored and managed, um, you, you don't need to um, you don't need to you know, enhance the the yeast metabolism by adding. Yeah, any sort of sucrose or maltose or things like that. Terrific. And we've also, so moving on to the third key ingredient, uh, having looked at the malt and the yeast, uh, you've also got three hops that are used in the Tui's Darling Pale Ale. Yeah, we have. Um, yeah, we've got uh, Galaxy, which um, you know, a lot of the brewers would be familiar with. Uh, it adds a real, you know, that sort of, uh, I guess typical passion fruit aroma and, and a bit of you know a bit of the bitterness that, that we, we get in it. Um, we've also got um, an American hop uh, Willamette, uh, which gives a, a real fruity um, you know, aroma as well uh, that you can pick up. We've also got our Amarillo, which is um, yeah becoming very popular with a lot of the craft brewers as well, which yeah, sort of gives that sort of grapefruity citrus you know, aroma that you can you can sort of smell. And you're talking about some of the aromas and some of the citrus. You'd obviously be familiar with a beer such as uh, Stone and Wood Pacific Ale, which is a user's galaxy hop and is a very bold expression of that passion fruit character. Someone who hasn't had a chance to try the, the ale yet, would they be expecting something as uh, sort of passion fruity and sort of obvious uh, fruit as that, or is it a little bit more subtle in the uh, Tui's version, in the Tui's Pale Ale? The Tui's version is a, it is a little it is a little bit more subtle. Um, it's yeah you know, not as um, pronounced as what you'd see in the Pacific Ale, 
Um, but st it's still there. Um, if you're you know, used to a, a, a pale ale that's very strong on, on the bitter side or you know, over the top with hops, um, it, it's, it's probably um, not um, going to sort of meet your requirements. Um, but it certainly is something that's designed to offer those same characters and the delicious hop characters that you're familiar with, but in a, in a more subtle form and something that um, we're hoping um, gives a high level of drinkability for um, you know, the Tui's drinkers. And you know, we're really sort of looking at it as an extension of the Tui's brand, you know, sort of reinvigorating a bit of that classic you know, full-strength um, drinker to you know, try something a little bit different that's um, becoming obviously part of a, a very fast-growing segment of the market. And uh, to, to, to make a beer that's all malt and using hops, uh, were any changes to the brewing process uh, required over a beer such as Two Is New? Uh, you know, actually, I should ask, were, there, were the hops kettle hops or were they extract um, used in the recipe? Uh, they're all kettle hops. So, you know, we're adding them directly to the kettle, um, both pre- and post-boil. And, um, yeah, so it's... Uh, As pellets... As pellets, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, that, that's that, that's a, a little bit different to say the Tui's um, new, which uses extract. I understand. Yeah. Look, um, oh, we we actually Tui's new uses super pride. Um, it doesn't use extract. Um, okay. So we're using pellets on Tui's new as well. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's got um, you know the traditional super pride. I guess what was the original Australian hop. Um, from the 1950s that was originally called Pride and developed by CUB and then further enhanced um, over the years to increase the, the alpha acids. Um, so we, we actually use that into his new, not, not an extract. Oh, I'm sorry, that, that was my misunderstanding. So, uh, there, so there you go. So it's a, it's a very, very similar process and uh, just looking yeah. at using different hops. Yeah, that's right. So what's, what's the feeling there? I'm trying to think of the last time a, a new beer was brought out under the Tui's label. What was the feeling within the brew team to be developing a new beer and particularly one that, you know, uh, it, it's an it's ale and it's working with some some different hops? I oh, look, very excited, Matt. Really excited. Our team, you know, we're really, um, you know, chuffed at the opportunity that, um, you know, yeah, the business was, was was interested in actually leveraging the great brewing credentials of our team, and you know we involved you know people off the shop floor in the creation of it. Um, we involved um, the whole team in the you know providing feedback and and giving uh, the opportunity to to add their sort of ten cents worth, and um, you know they're really extremely proud and and very excited to see you know how how it goes. Um, you know, we're really pleased with how it's, how it's coming off tap as well, um, and just uh, really excited to see to see how it goes. But look, we're you know just over the moon to be given the opportunity to you know extend it to his brand and, and also to allow our team to you know, leverage their great brewing credentials uh, in a way that um, will hopefully you know result in a in a, in a beer that, that that people will love and enjoy.
Lines, a you know, big company with a number of uh, breweries, whether it's the Little Creatures, the White Rabbit, um, even Napstein, you, you've, you've got brewers that get to move between all of those breweries. Um, where does the Tui's um, brew team come from? Are, are they a fair, you know, have they sort of been developed through the Tui's um, brewery itself, or have they sort of come from all over the, the, the Lion family? Yeah, bit of a bit of a mixture. Um, we we have um, people that have actually grown up through the brewery that have, that have basically a lot of our brewers have, have been around you know ten fifteen years, um, and they've come up through the brewery. Um, there are some that have come from part of our brewery network. Uh, one of our technical brewers, um, he's he's worked or oh, he's, he's worked overseas at Fuller's and other breweries, and he's now um, then he was based at Four X and now he's based at Tui's. Um, we've got other people that have come through the malt shovel um, and then moved into um, West End and then New Zealand and then back into Tui. So we've got some we've got some people with some pretty broad exposure. And, and we also do, you're probably aware, a number of international beers under license. So, you know, and they're all done to, um, you know, you know Ryan Hotzkabot rules and those sorts of things so you know very very sort of traditional brewing you know when we brew Heineken or Stella Artois or Bex um, and so we've got some people who've got some you know really good brewing capability experience but yes yeah, some have come from within the organization right from the shop floor um, others have you know, studied various degrees and uh, you know worked towards their their, their you know, diploma in brewing um, but yeah, pretty diverse group of people from from all sorts of backgrounds. And did it, you know, is w- within a company such as Line, is working for one of the big brands um, seen as a you know a, something to aspire to, or you know to to, to move up through the, the the business into the bigger brands? Um, yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of um, you know you know. Yeah, there's great things to be involved in some of the small brands as well. I mean, the amount of innovation that that happens with the smaller brands is is very exciting, and you know the the the, the opportunity to be creative and things like that. Um, in the larger brands, you know, we're really aspiring to you know deliver great quality beer every single time, and and we we have a, a group of people, and I guess in a culture that's um, always looking to improve the way in which we operate. And you know, a lot of people love working at Tui's because of its, I guess, unique culture in in some respects. In that, you know, we we encourage people to, um, you know, get engaged, participate, problem solve together, and and it creates an environment where yeah, people, you know, they, they really they really love the place and they love what they do, which is fantastic for someone you know in a role like mine um, to work with such passionate people. With um, Tui's uh, Darling Pale Ale just been released, um, you're obviously sensing that beer drinkers are looking for a change, um, you know, in what they what they're drinking. They're they're not just after the classic, as I said, traditional or even the, the more recent, um, you know, lower carb or I think they call it contemporary to use a marketing term. Um, you know, sort of very light style lager, such as a um, summer bright lager um, from the Forex um, yeah. brand. Yeah. Do you know, without sort of giving anything too much away, will we see some other beers being developed? Um, you know, that may be pushing flavours um, and sort of giving drinkers a wider portfolio to drink from. You know, in the line traditional brand. 
Yeah, look, I think the reality is that, that consumers are looking for a greater choice. And, and, you know, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, we're seeing segments like the payload segment growing really, really fast. And, you know, we, we're very keen to, um, you know, to get involved in, in some of those growing areas. I mean, we're in brewing. You know, we need to be able to, um, you know, change the shape of, of what we're doing, yeah, you know, we've we've got a, a fairly um, significant pipeline of innovation that, that's coming down the pipeline, so to speak, um, across the business, and um, you know, and I'm sure that um, as as opportunities arise, we, we're going to obviously share that with with, with everyone and um, and move forward. But yeah, look, you know, we're obviously really keen to to grow the segment. We're seeing changes in consumer preferences. Um, and, you know, we want to be able to sort of move with those. So some of our brands, yes, will be looking to sort of um, extend them beyond their traditional uh, backgrounds. How long does a beer uh, such as the um, Pale Ale take to develop? You know, was this something that three months ago the, the brewing team decided to, you know, well, we need something in this space? Or, you know, does it go back, you know, 12, 18 months or yeah, even longer? It, yeah, it, it does take time and a lot of it sort of uh, with those sort of decisions um, a lot of the actual brewing part of it is probably relatively straightforward in some respects um, you know once we understand the brief and where we're going to and, and that sort of thing and then we get to play around um, the, the bits before that is really understanding the brand and 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 what the consumer's view of it is and um, you know what their purchase intent would be and and things like that so a lot of work gets done in the, in the sort of research stage, um, you know, in, in the sort of more, you know, in the larger larger brands, Matt. Obviously, with, you know, the, some of the smaller brands, there's a lot more freedom to, to play and just create and experiment with with um, with different styles and flavours and just see how it's tested within certain markets and, you know, postcodes and things like that, which you've probably seen around the place. Um, but with the larger brands, there's a lot of work done in the background. Um, in terms of the brewing process, look, we we would um, we 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 took about sort of you know three months from the moment that we were actually said, yep, let's go and we need to do something about this. Depending on the quantities, we've got to make sure that raw materials are available. Last thing we want to do is you know, launch a new beer with a trademark like Tui's and have great distribution and not have you know enough materials of you know the specific hop varieties or, or malt or that sort of thing. So. Yeah, it does take us a bit of time to you know, get that sort of supply side of it worked out. The creative piece is um, is you know, literally you know, a number of you know, number of months. That that uh, raises an interesting uh, question because obviously you know, Tui's uh, a brand like Tui's has a big call for raw in, in ingredients. I mean, even one or two batches is a significant um, call, and hops such as Galaxy. Um, have experienced uh, some shortfalls um, over the, you know, there's been some strain on supply from the hop growers over the last uh, year or two. Um, you know, you, you've incorporated it in, into this brew. Um, you know, how do you go, it's not a hop that you traditionally use um, within Tui, so you know, how do you go ensuring you've got supply of a, you know, a fairly limited re release hop? Yeah, great question. And look, that is um, that's one of the challenges in terms of timing 
and working with our uh, supplier, um, Hot Products Australia, and making sure they've got enough coming through uh, in, in this season and the next season and, and things like that. And, yeah, that's one of the sort of, I guess, risk issues that we've actually got to look to engage our suppliers on um, early and up front because, um, you know, the last thing we want to do is, is short the market of a, of a you know, an industry-based, um, you know, hop that, that everyone's um, using. It, it must be reinventing the business a little bit as well when, you know, you, you mentioned the Super Pride hop that you use that was developed uh, from Pride of Ringwood that was, uh, yeah. on, on my understanding, developed because uh, the, the large brewers wanted a very efficient uh, hop in terms of getting that uh, alpha acid bitterness into beer um, in the most efficient way. Um, so it was a very yep. high alpha variety that was developed. Hops like, such as Galaxy, you know, are, are far less efficient, and you need to tend to use more of them. They're a more expensive hop than some of the more commodity uh, um, varieties. It must be, uh, you know, um, a, a lot involved in developing a beer and bringing it in at a price point. Um, but still getting some of those flavour and some of those, uh, you know, um, yeah, new hop varieties, you know, included. Yeah, it is, and uh, you're absolutely right. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're not going. We don't want to compromise on ultimately the flavour and the delivery of of, of what the beer is intended to be like. Um, yeah, I guess you know, I think brewing has been through quite some change, and you know, the super pride or yeah, super pride of pride of Ringwood. Yes, was that was developed with a high alpha acid for, for bitterness. It also has, you know, a certain aroma and pine coney sort of, um, you know, aroma that actually comes through with it as well. Um, if you look at something like Tui's New, it's really well balanced between you know the hoppiness and the maltiness, and um, yeah, we've never really yeah you know, compromised on the recipe. Uh, we're always trying to make sure we, we deliver it consistently um, each time and every time we, we brew that beer. Um, something like you know, the, the new new salt, you know, I guess something like the pale ale where you've got um, Cascade. Um, yeah, it, 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 we don't really, we're actually going for flavour and quality um, and it is a premium style beer and then I think consumers are expecting, you know, beer drinkers are expecting to to um, you know, taste it and say, yep, this is a great quality beer, and that's that's something that we're not going to compromise on. So you know, we're prepared to actually add, ensure that we add, you know, the right ingredients in the right levels, and and make sure that um, it fits the the profile that, that we're after. It, it, it's interesting. You you just mentioned the word premium. Um, you know, Tui's has traditionally been well has has tended to be that traditional um, beer brand, um, a mainstream beer brand, and some of the other beers in the line portfolio. You know, perhaps Han um, ha, has been seen as a more premium label, um, and then you know some some of the craft uh, labels. Um, and yeah. Is this a sign that the Tui's brand is? And I'm conscious that this may not be something that you can. Uh, um, address from the brewery side, but are we going to see a bit of a reinvigoration of the Tui's brand? I think we've seen. I, I, I guess you've seen the, the sort of um, the packaging up of the Tui's brothers, and um, we've brought together, you know, all, all the, the um, I guess yeah, under that umbrella of Tui's brothers, we've brought the Tui's brand to sort of recognise the great history of Tui's. Um, yeah, look, look. 
the quality of our beers has always been, um, we'd like to think, exceptional. Um, and um, and I guess uh, if you if you think about Tui's as a brand, it's you know I guess it's a perception. We've always perceived it as being, you know, a, a really a top class mainstream beer. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it's sort of not. It's a natural progression uh, for us to actually then put it under a banner and, and draw together, you know, the, the the Darling Pale Ale, the Dark Old Ale, and the extra dry and repackage it under the the Tui's Brothers. It just seems to there's a great story there um, behind behind the history, and people are looking for a story behind um, any food or or beer that they're or beverage that they're drinking. Terrific. Now, um, I, I guess the one question is: uh, Does this, where does the uh, does the beer come in um, price-wise? Um, look, I, I haven't got all the detail on the on the pricing of it, but I believe it's sort of, um, you know, it's priced above the the classic full strength and possibly um, positioned around where some of the other pale ales are currently, um, you know, currently um, being sold at. Terrific. That might be something I need to take up with the uh, the, the brand team around price. Yeah, prob- I mean, you probably could. I mean, I, I've got some details here, but look, the um, you know, there's a I guess a promotional price around forty six dollars, and you know, the sort of the promos around off promos around fifty. So it's sort of you know, it's placed well, it's placed above the the, the sort of classic or the um, I guess the, the sort of main mainstream beer pricing, if you like. Terrific. Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. All the best with the new Tui's Darling Pale Ale. And, uh, yeah, please keep us posted with any developments you've got coming uh, down the pipeline. Excellent, Matt. And uh, as I said, you're most welcome to come down and have a look at the brewery and and, uh, and we'll maybe have a few beers across the bar together. Maybe even uh, have a crack on that uh, pilot plan. Absolutely. <laughs> Good Good on you, Mark. Thanks very much for your time. Cheers, mate. Bye. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go. It, it, it's a fascinating one. As I said, it, um, as I was leading into that interview, there have been a lot of discussions about the Tui's Darling Pale Ale, um, particularly the, the choice of words in the media release where they really emphasised the fact that it was very subtle um, or very uh, low flavour. When you speak to Mark, he's talking about a lot of the ingredients that should be bringing some uh, you know, flavour characters out. The media release seemed to be indicating something differently. I'll be speaking to the brand people and uh, we'll be penning a bit of a story to find out what their hopes are for the brand um, and you know why they've chosen to put a, a beer that may have a, a craft beer uh, taint or a craft beer um, you know, patina um, being a pale ale into a mainstream brand, which I think is uh, just as fascinating as the beer itself. But look, if I'm going to editorialise a little, um, look, if you're about good beer, um, 
beer can go one or two ways. We can move uh, towards very light flavoured, very highly adjunct, um, you know, very, very uh, unchallenging, low bitterness beers such as Corona at one end. Um, or we can sort of move into the craft space uh, at the other. Um, and if nothing else, the, the, the resurgence in beer, the uh, you know, interest in beer, the interest in beer uh, ingredients has seen, you know, line bring out a beer that is, it, it's all malt. Um, it's got kettle hops. It's got a blend of them to try and bring out some flavour. If you want to, you know, snort in derision, this beer is probably not for you. Um but at the same time, don't forget that 95% of the beer market isn't drinking craft yet. Um, I, I don't have strong views either way about this notion of a gateway beer. But if the beer market can become less interesting or more interesting, I'm much more in favour of the beer market becoming more interesting. And certainly this beer actually has something to talk about. Um, it's been a long time since mainstream beers have uh, you know, really had something in the bottle to talk about and not just the brand and the sponsorship and the awareness. So that's my two cents worth. It's, I guess it's my show. I can say what I want and I don't have prof here to rein me in. So there you go, listeners. Now, that's it for the show. Um, really, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the interviews. Um, Pete will be back next week. Um, to, uh, to co-host with me. Um, as always, you can follow us on Facebook. Um, I'm Good Beer Matt on Facebook and Twitter uh, and uh, Instagram. Um, Pete is Beer Blokes and uh, Prof Pilsner, I think. Uh, but you, you'll certainly find us uh, in the in the show notes. Um, if, if you like the show, um, we sort of do put it out there. We've become regular. Um, and if you like the show and you're a regular listener, please jump onto your favourite podcasting directory, whether it's iTunes uh, or any of the other um, that are around, to leave a review. Um, let other people find us or help other people to find us, which is a, a great boost for our show. But also let us know what you think. Uh, we gave away a couple of books last week. We are going to be uh, generating some more prizes, and they'll certainly go out to our uh, regular read our regular listeners um, but in the in the meantime in the absence of Pete uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, talk to you again next week Lockie strike up the band Yeah.